Well, this time of year, I'm sure many of you are feeling it, it's that narky time of year, isn't it? You know what I mean by that? We're kind of a bit irritable, we're tired, we're running out of puff, ready for a holiday. You feeling that? But there's no holiday uh, any time soon. Well, you know, not for a few weeks anyway. There's still lots going on. A million things happening. School concerts, graduations, other end-of-year performances, work Christmas parties to attend. Then there's family Christmas coming. And we all know how narky that can be, don't we? You're just hoping that Auntie Cheryl this year keeps her mouth shut. Uncle Bruce behaves himself. Everyone's got an Uncle Bruce in their family, don't they? We're all a bit narky this time of year, at the end of the year, but we're not meant to be. We're not meant to be. We're meant to be joyful. That's what the Christmas songs are saying that are playing on repeat in the, in the shops. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. Yay, be happy. Or this one, tis the season to be jolly. Fa la 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 la. That's my favourite, that one. <laughs> You're meant to find joy at Christmas. That's the point, isn't it? Meant to find joy at Christmas. So you wish people a Merry Christmas, even if you don't feel that merry yourself. Well, I reckon life as a Christian can feel a bit like this. You know you're meant to find joy in being a Christian. You're meant to find joy in Jesus. But instead, sometimes you're just tired, running out of puff, ready maybe to even have a holiday from God. You feel like God's not there when you pray. You feel the weight of sin you commit again and again. You feel, you feel like God's removed from your everyday experience of life. Where's that joy on Monday morning when you're stuck in traffic trying to get out of Nunnawal? Or when you're cleaning up milk off the floor? Where's that joy in double English at school? Or when you're getting flogged at work? Where's that joy when you're anxious? Or feeling down. Well, John 20 shows us where that joy is found. John 20 shows us that joy can be found even in sadness, even in busyness, even in the ordinary, mundane things of life. But looking now at the beginning of John chapter 20, what do we see? Well, there's no joy among Jesus' followers, is there? They just buried their friend, their teacher, the one that they'd pinned all their hopes in life. Jesus was right when he said in chapter 16, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. In verse 1, there's Mary Magdalene mourning in the dark at Jesus' tomb. And as if it wasn't enough that Jesus was dead... Now it looks like someone's stolen the body. His tomb's been broken into. She sees that the stone that was used to seal the entrance has been taken away. 
Now, Jesus told Mary when her brother Lazarus died, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he backed up that claim, remember, in John 11, by raising Lazarus to life. But Mary doesn't believe in a resurrection here. She thinks someone's stolen the body. And she goes running to tell Peter and John about what she saw. Well, when Peter and John hear the news, they take off at top speed to go and see for themselves. One is faster than the other, you might have noticed. And the one that's faster than the other, I find this funny, is the one that writes it down. John is writing this gospel and he tells us all that he was quicker than Peter. I don't know why, maybe Peter tripped over on the way or perhaps he was carrying a bit more weight. Maybe he wasn't, just wasn't as fit, he had a bit more breakfast that morning. Who knows? Doesn't really matter. The thing that matters is that they both got there and what Mary saw was confirmed. The tomb was empty. See, there's now enough daylight to see inside, even go inside and see. And what do they see? Strips of linen, the cloths Jesus' body was wrapped in and they're sitting there folded neatly. Now, seeing this evidence brings John to believe. He believes in Jesus' resurrection right here. So it makes sense that he would include this evidence in his book, doesn't it? But why else might John include this evidence? The evidence of the empty tomb. I think there's there's probably two reasons. The first one is that it shows us that Jesus' resurrection was different from Lazarus's. Remember when Lazarus rose, he rose in his grave clothes and he had to be removed, he had to have those grave clothes removed. Jesus, when he rises, he leaves them behind. His resurrection is in a totally new order to Lazarus's. You see, Lazarus rose to die again. But Jesus rose never to die again. Well, the second thing I think it shows is that Jesus' resurrection was a physical, bodily resurrection. And so, taken with the rest of the chapter, when Mary, the apostles, Thomas, encountered the risen Jesus, they weren't just caught up in some spiritual experience or imagining of their mind. What they saw was the one, who they saw was the one they buried. They could smell him, they could touch him. I've been to three funerals this year. And let me tell you something that struck me at each of them. It struck me that there's no real comfort, no real joy in anything other than a physical and bodily resurrection. Without Jesus, who's gone through death for us and out the other side to new physical life, death wins. And when death wins, life now just becomes living in fear, living in fear of our own death. But when Jesus, but with Jesus' bodily resurrection comes the promise of our bodily resurrection and the difference life now becomes living in joyful hope that's the difference well just as mary was the first to witness the empty tomb 
She's the first to witness the risen Jesus. We're looking at the resurrection today, leading up to Christmas. Maybe you're finding it a bit weird, but it's okay. Jesus was born and he died and rose again. We need to remember the resurrection at Christmas as well. She's back at the tomb, Mary Magdalene, and she's crying her eyes out. She sees two angels, and the two angels, knowing that Jesus has risen, they tell her, I'm sorry, they ask her why she's crying. See, it's not the time for crying. She tells them why someone's taken the body, she thinks. Then she turns around, and when she turns, she sees Jesus, but she doesn't recognise him. She thinks he's the gardener. He asks her the same question. Why are you crying? And another question, who, it is, who is it that you're looking for? And Jesus is calling her here to set aside her grief and recognise the reality in front of her. He's alive. But all she wants to know is where the body is. It's not until Jesus calls her by name. Was it his voice? Was it She'd heard that name so many times before that, that triggered it for her. Mary, he says, and the penny drops. She realises the one that she's looking for is there in front of her. Jesus is the one speaking to her and he's very much alive. And Mary's grief turns to joy It's seen in her response of going to the disciples with the good news that she's seen the Lord. But check out the the message that Jesus sends with her. I love this message. It's been a source of joy for me this week. It's there in verse 17. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father, to my God, and your God. What we have here isn't just any kind of message. It's an intimate message, a personal message, a family message. If it was on an envelope, high schoolers, do you know what an envelope is? Do you? Well, if it was on an envelope, this is what it would say on the front. To my dear brothers. And the message inside, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. See, Jesus' death for sinners and resurrection to new life is a game changer. It opens the way to a new kind of relationship with God, a relationship that is shared by believers in every age and in every place where they can call God their Father, their God. See, the love that the Father has always had for the Son is shared with us by the Spirit. The access that the Son has to the Father is now ours too, by the Spirit. How awesome is that? My Father and your Father. My God and your God. You know the Lord's Prayer? Jesus' prayer that teaches us how to pray? It begins with our Father. 
our Father. And when Jesus teaches us to pray our Father, he's not just teaching us to identify with other believers when we pray. It's more than that. He's teaching us to join with him, our brother, in speaking to our Father. I often struggle to pray. I often struggle to pray with joy. Maybe it's because I forget who I'm praying to, my Father, and who I'm praying with, other believers and Jesus. No wonder Mary was overjoyed to go and share this message uh, with the disciples. Well, sometime after Mary delivered the message, still on the same day, in the evening, Jesus appears to his disciples. Despite hearing the news that Jesus is alive, not much has changed for them. If you crossed to a live reporter in the room and you asked them to give you an update on the mood of the room, they might describe it as dark. There's grief and there's fear. See, they've even bolted the doors, afraid of what the Jews might do if they find Jesus followers. But bolted doors don't prevent Jesus from entering. See, this is a physical body, but it's a glorious uh, physical body. And, and Jesus comes in and, and he stands among them and he greets them with a familiar greeting, peace be with you, he says. Now in the church I grew up in, we had this tradition called sharing the peace. And there was a point in the service where uh, everyone would, would get up and wander around the people around them, eyeball people, and you'd shake their hand and you'd say, peace be with you. And then the other person would say, and also with you. But you know, you did it that much that it kind of become this... Uh, token greeting, if you like. Now, Jesus here, he's not giving his disciples just a token greeting. He's giving them words of assurance. See, immediately after saying, peace be with you, he shows them his wounds, his side. He shows them that it's really him. He's assuring them that he's accomplished all that's necessary, everything that his father sent him to do. He assures them that through his death and resurrection, forgiveness can be theirs. And he assures them that he's overcome the world and secured their place in heaven. That's what he's doing. Then there's a dramatic change. A dramatic change in the mood of the room. If we cross back to our live reporter they might say it was jubilant. Jubilant. See, Jesus was right when he said to his disciples back in chapter 16, verse 20, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. But that's only half the verse. You know the second half of the verse? The other half says, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Today is the day that the disciples' grief turns to joy. But Jesus still has more mileage to make out of this appearance to his disciples. See, he's given them the word of assurance, but he's going to give them words of commission. You see, he might have completed his ministry in the flesh, but his ministry would continue by the Spirit through the word of the apostles. And so he says to them, as the Father sent me, 
I am sending you. Sent to spread the message of forgiveness. Sent to bring the message of life to the world. Sent to establish this new community in Jesus. This community of believing. See, many others will share their joy in the risen Lord Jesus. The beginning of a community, a believing community, founded on the apostles seeing their eyewitness testimony of the risen Lord Jesus. And this new community is bound together by the Spirit. But before they go out into the world on mission, their first missionary encounter is to a mate. Their mate, Thomas. See, their mate Thomas wasn't with them. He was one of the twelve, but he wasn't with them when Jesus appeared. So they tell Thomas what they saw. But Thomas doesn't share their joy. He's, he's a doubter. He doesn't trust them. He wants hard evidence. He wants proof. He wants to see for himself. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, he says in verse 25, and put my finger where the nails were and my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Jesus is in no hurry. He lets Thomas stew on his unbelief for a week while his mates rejoice. But then he appears and he gives him the proof. Hey, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas, he believes. He believes. His personal confession of faith in verse 28 is the climax of John's Gospel. A bit like in Mark where the centurion confesses that this one must be the Son of God. My Lord and my God, he says. My Lord and my God. Have you had this moment with Jesus? The moment of recognising who Jesus is and believing in him? Do you enjoy a personal relationship with Jesus? Can you say, my Lord and my God? Because if you can, Jesus says in the very next verse that you are blessed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's a gentle rebuke to Thomas. Thomas, you saw and believed. You only believed because you saw. You needed to see. But seeing... Physical seeing with your eyes isn't necessary to genuine faith. Real blessing, real favour with God, real joy in the Christian life doesn't depend on being able to see Jesus now in the flesh. That's why he gives the Spirit. Joy in the Christian life comes not by seeing Jesus now, but by believing Jesus now. 
See, John has his eye on his readers here. His readers who have not seen the risen Lord Jesus. Us who have not seen the risen Lord Jesus. But what we do have, what they had, is the Apostles' eyewitness testimony. And not only is it sufficient to believe, it's in no way inferior to believing based on sight. See, believing in the Apostles' eyewitness testimony is not kind of like second-class believing. In fact, as we've seen all the way through John, sight can actually be a hindrance. In chapter 9, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. See, seeing doesn't guarantee genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus' words to Thomas, they teach us something important, don't they? John Piper says this, and I had to, I had to rip him off and put him in here. Um, it's such a good quote. He says, It's faith sight, not eyesight, that results in eternal life. It's faith sight, not eyesight, that results in eternal life. True joy comes not by seeing Jesus now, but by believing in him now. Remember verse 31, that verse that we've been banging on about all the way through this series? Well, we're actually up to it now in John and it's not an accident that it comes after these resurrection appearances. And John says, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, what life now looks like for followers of Jesus It's a life of faith. It's a life of belief in who Jesus is. And life now is life now. It's not just a future thing. It's not just an eternity thing. It starts now and it is good. And because of that, it can be full of joy. Do you know a joyless Christian life is actually foreign to the New Testament? It's just not there. Yes, there is suffering, there is pain, there is struggle in a broken world, there is all kinds of difficulties in life, things that aren't very joyful, if you like. But for the Christian, there's always joy. Joy to be found in the life-giving and life-changing truth that Jesus is alive. And how is that joy experienced now? By lining our lives up with Jesus, the risen Jesus. That's what our life plans each week have been helping us to do, haven't they? Helping us to line our lives up with Jesus by taking real action in our lives. And so the life plan this week is life plan enjoy. Life plan enjoy. It's all about enjoying life now in the risen Lord Jesus. And the key concept I want to focus on with us is the concept of relationship. 
How are we related to the risen Jesus? By the Spirit. The Spirit who's united us to him, our brother. And because we're united to Jesus, our brother, and John's really big on this, we're also united to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, life now is enjoyed not in isolation. Life now is enjoyed in Christian community. Every time we gather, every time we meet with other believers, every time we meet with another believer, it's a celebration of life in Jesus' name together. And so look around you now. Look around you. Come on, look around. Look at the people around you now. What do you see? Who do you see? Tradies? Public servants? Mums, dads, students? Men? Women? Younger people? Older people? If you look with the eyes of faith, you can see more than that. You'll see brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters in Christ. And in your brothers and sisters, with the eyes of faith, you'll start to see how they help you to enjoy life now. See, when you feel like God's not there, when you feel the weight of sin that you keep committing again and again, when you feel like God's removed from your everyday experience, it is then that you most need your brothers and sisters in Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German uh, theologian and pastor, the two can exist, pastor and theologian. This is what he said, listen carefully. In themselves, Christians are destitute and dead. Help must come from the outside and it has come and comes daily and anew in the word of Jesus Christ. But God put his word into the mouth of human beings so that it may be passed on to others. Therefore, Christians need other Christians who speak God's word to them. They need them again and again when they become uncertain and disheartened because, living by their own resources, they cannot help themselves. Bonhoeffer was massive on life together as believers. Life together, living our lives with the reality that Jesus is alive and that he has given us his spirit. It's like the spirit is the, is the outstretched arm of the exalted Lord Jesus. And so, find someone to pray with at this narky time of year. When you gather with church family, when, and you're feeling under the pump, feeling down, not feeling the joy... Let people sing to you, reminding you of the gospel. Have meals together. Have each other in your space, 
See, this time of year, it's easy to drift, isn't it? It's the end of the year. Some of us will be going on holidays. We might not be meeting together here as normal. We might be in, in all kinds of different places. And because of that, it's, it's easy to drift away. It's easy to kind of lose sight of what matters, lose sight of the risen Lord Jesus. So this, at this narky time of year, the end of the year, when things are a bit different, have a plan. Have a plan for connecting with other Christians that you might enjoy resurrection life in Jesus.